You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We welcome again to the podcast today, Jonathan Mitchell, to get his input on apolumai, an important Greek word in the discussion about eternal destinies. You can find out more about Jonathan's work at jonathanmitchellnewtestament.com, and there you can find PDFs of most of his commentaries. You can also find Jonathan's work present at the website www.greater-emmanuel.org. Welcome back, Jonathan Mitchell, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you, David. It's good to be with you again. Well, let me set the stage a little before we get into this discussion about Apollumi. In the debate about the Bible and eternal destinies, there is a lot of discussion around this Greek word, Apollumi, and the various shades of meaning it can have. The annihilationist camp admits that Apollumi can simply mean lost in a passive sense. For instance, in Luke 15, the sheep, the coin, and the son are all described with the form of the word Apollumi, meaning that the sheep and the coin and the son are misplaced or missing, but have not gone out of existence altogether. However, they argue that when apolumai is used in the active voice, this is when it carries the meaning of ceasing to exist altogether. So let's just start, Jonathan, with this basic question. What does the New Testament mean when it says that something is lost, destroyed, or perishing? Speaking, uh, David, speaking to this particular word uh, in the King James Version, these words all translate the the word, as you said, apolumai, which is a verb form, and it's an intensified form of olumi. Olumi means to lose, to destroy, to cause ruin, or to be ruined, with a prefix apo added, apolumi, means to be completely lost, to be fully destroyed, to utterly ruin. Uh, this latter ver- verb is the one that is used in the New Testament, the, the, the latter form, apolumi. Well, Jonathan, can you give us some examples of just how this word is used in the New Testament? Yeah, and that is, David, that's such a, a good way to really understand how the word is used in the New Testament. So let me give a few illuminating examples from the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 2.13, Herod wanted to destroy the young child Jesus. Well, all he wanted to do was kill him, get rid of him. In Matthew 5.29-30, Jesus speaks of various body parts, the eye, the hand, the foot, being destroyed or lost. And we can understand from the context of how of, of that that he he was meaning, you know, pluck it out, cut it off, and so forth. As opposed in it, to do this, as opposed to one's whole body being cast, and this I, I suggest is presumably by the Romans into Gehenna, the the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, uh, after they had been crucified for being a criminal uh, for. Uh, 
stealing something, taking up a sword against the empire or something along that line. Now, so we suggest there, Jesus, I think most uh, most people would agree that he is speaking uh, metaphorically about plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand and foot and so forth. In Matthew 5, 25, Jesus' disciples thought that the storm was going to utterly destroy them in the lake. And that meant they thought they were going to drown, so they would be lost. Uh, in Matthew 9, 17, Jesus speaks of, of wineskins or wine bottles being completely ruined. You know, they didn't go out of existence, but you just couldn't use them for, for making wine anymore. In Matthew 10, 6, Jesus sent his disciples to the destroyed, lost, or ruined sheep of Israel. Now, these were existing in a destroyed state, and they were coming to be rescued and saved and so forth. I'm going to men mention briefly, although we're focusing on in this podcast on the verb, that the noun cognate of this verb, uh, apolia, is first found in the life assessment contrast uh, in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. And let me read that through an abbreviated version of my translation. Jesus said, you folks enter through this narrow, restrictive, and cramping gate, because wide is the gate and spacious is the roadway, habitually leading off into the loosing away of loss, ruin, waste, and destruction or demolition. And many are the folks continuously entering through and by means of it. For this gate is narrow and, and cramping and restrictive, which is habitually leading off into life. And this path, meaning the one he is leading, which he is, has been compressed and squeezed, and the folks presently finding it are few. Uh, the only other place in Matthew where this noun is found is in Matthew 26, 8, where the disciples were complaining about how the woman used the costly ointment that she poured upon Jesus' head. And so in, in that verse, we read, Now on seeing this, the disciples became annoyed, saying to him, Why this waste? Or why this loss? Why this ruin? So, that, that gives a couple of, uh, of examples of, of the cognate noun as, uh, to, to fill in and show how both the noun and the verb are used in just natural things. So the annihilationist camp would want to say that, that while sometimes this word can mean simply, you know, misplaced or ruined, they want to say it can also mean gone completely out of existence and not salvageable. But in your opinion, there is the possibility that even after being ruined, destroyed, it is possible that things can be salvaged or saved or restored. So could you tell us something about this? Yes, definitely. Jesus' mission was to seek and to save the lost and destroyed, as we read in Matthew fifteen twenty four. again in my translation. Yet he, making a discerning reply, said, I was not commissioned and sent off as an emissary, except into the midst of those sheep having been completely destroyed, the ones that belong to the house of Israel. Now, the lost, destroyed, and ruined condition of Israel 
was the cultural spiritual condition which generated the thinking of the Judean leadership, which was produced by the need for God's lamb to carry away the sins of the world. Part of this lived out drama was the character in the story which was played by Judah, also known as Judas. It should have been translated as just Judah, who for this reason, I suggest, was called the son of the loss or the son of the dissolution or from destruction or the person having the characteristics of lost dissolution or destruction so that the scripture could and would be fulfilled. Now that's John 17, 12. Judah fulfilled the role of the Israelite who would take the sacrificial lamb to the priest to be offered. It was the dissolution of the old covenant and Israel's sacrificial cultus, wherein we observe this necessary role which Judah acted out. And thus was he termed by Jesus, the son of perdition, meaning the son of lost, so forth. Well, Jonathan, there is one thing I want to observe here about this passage in Matthew fifteen twenty-one through 28, where Jesus is, especially in verse 24, where he's, he makes this comment, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And, and you alluded to this, but, but this verb translated here is apololota, and that's a perfect active participle, which in the perfect active tense means having been destroyed. That's a pretty strong, it seems completely destroyed, yet... Yes. We know that all of Israel, well, Paul declares later on that all of Israel will be saved. So here we have an example of something that Jesus has sent to something that has been completely ruined in order to make a restoration. And that's in the active, that's in the active voice. So yes. I think that's an example of how strong this verb form can be. But still have the but still have the idea of salvation or restoration on the other side of it. David, if we look back at Israel's history, we see Israel as a nation, and God dealt with them primarily as a nation, as a people group. They they were repeatedly destroyed, and yet here here comes the Savior to rescue them, to to bring life out of out of the, out of their dead. Or like uh, Ephesians 1 says, you know, that we were, all, we were dead in trespasses and sins, you know. And that death is the destruction of that is usually being talked about in metaphorically, but it's, it's acted out literally for us to see in, in so many of the examples that we will be going through in, the, in this discussion. Now, it's, it's in verse 24 that Jesus makes the remark, I was sent, as you just read. And yes, it, you're, you're absolutely correct in, in your description of the verb form there. The participle is active, as you point out. The state and condition of having been completely destroyed is parallel to the state and condition of being dead. Now, just as being dead is a prerequisite to being resurrected, so is the state of destruction a prerequisite to restoration and rebuilding. Keep in mind that in, in the 21st chapter of Revelation, he says, I am making all things new. Right? I mean, this is, this is the, the end game that he's talking about, where Christ came into the world in a destroyed state. 
once again, you had mentioned about the in Luke the the things that were lost, and being lost is is a state of being prior to being found. In Isaiah fifty eight twelve, Isaiah says, "Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt." That's after they had been destroyed. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. The old covenant prophecy spoke to the spiritual realities of the new covenant, where we build God's spiritual temple, his called out people, with gold, silver, and precious stones, as we read in 1 Corinthians 3. Ezekiel 36.10 offers another witness, where it says, the cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. Matthew 16.25 uses apolemy in the active voice twice in that same verse. Especially in the second form, it is used of figuratively destroying one's soul. Yet he's not talking about suicide, not talking about destroying your life. And let me just read that. You see, whoever may intend to keep his soul life safe will continually will continue uh, ruining and destroying it. Yet whoever can even destroy his soul life, here it's the active voice, destroy his soul life, uh, on my account, will continue finding it. So you're right. The active voice is, is used right here in, in a main statement to Jesus, to his disciples, you know, that, that you've, if you destroy that, and what comes to mind, David, as we're talking here, is, you know, what Paul said, it's like, I died, you know. He says, mm-hmm. I, I no longer live, but Christ lives within me. And this is, this is the, the thing of the, the old Adam, the old self, dying. So the argument that when, when Apollomy is used in the active vo- voice, this is when it carries the meaning of ceasing to exist altogether, is simply incorrect. That's that's a fallacious argument. It's it's a fallacy that that the uh, that the active voice means that it completely ceases to exist. Well, in a way, when we're growing spiritually, we want to actively pursue the destruction of the false self or yes. the presence of sin, and so we want to die to all. We want to actively pursue our death to all of that so that we can experience newness of life. That is true. But in the same sense, we see from this verse and from what you've just said, that doesn't mean that we as individuals cease to exist forever. There's a part of us that are, you might say it's our consciousness uh, is, is one way people understand the word soul or the self-life. And, and in this context, uh, uh, Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, in nice scene there, he says, you have to deny yourself. And so this is the understanding. And that is that too is in, in the active voice. Okay, let's move on now to Matthew 10, 28, which in the NIV reads, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This verse speaks of fearing the one having the power to destroy both soul and body in hell, which in the original Greek is actually Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, which also had the nickname the Valley of Slaughter. And the Greek verb here is 
apolesei, an aorist active infinitive to destroy. So what does this warning in Matthew 10, 28 mean to you? David, these verses start out with Jesus telling folks to stop fearing those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So who were the folks that who would likely be able to kill the body? Well, those could have been bandits or soldiers in battle or even enemies that might kill using poison. But what about the soul? How was this term being used by Jesus in this verse? In the ancient uh, Old Testament view, the term was used to mean a person. But here Jesus differentiates between body and soul. So what did he mean in this context? Jesus' audience lived in an honor-slash-shame society. Honor was to be sought, shame was to be avoided. It was a loss of honor and a great shame not to be buried in a proper way and place. Being cast into Gehenna was a dishonorable end. It brought shame to the individual and to the family. A person's name and honor were aspects of the person's soul. So Jesus advised against doing whatever would bring a dishonorable end, such as being crucified by the Romans. Had Joseph of Arimathea not been given the body of Jesus to bury, Jesus would have ended up in Gehenna, a dishonorable end for Judea's Messiah. Perhaps this is why the elders and priests did not simply stone Jesus, as later they did to Stephen, as we read in the book of Acts. They wanted to kill Jesus' soul, his reputation, the name and all that he represented to the Judeans and to the Romans. Notice that in Matthew 12, 14, the Pharisees wanted to completely destroy, and that's our same uh, verb in uh, an era subjunctive, they wanted to destroy Jesus. This desire would have included character assassination, which they also attempted verbally by various times calling him, you're, a, you know, uh, you're doing this by the work of, of a, an idol, you know, and so forth. They, they tried to put him down verbally, and then eventually they had him executed by the Romans. What about Matthew 10, 39, where Jesus advises destroying one's soul in order to find it? All right. This is another witness to the fact, and it is an enigmatic saying. Let's look at the whole verse. The person who is searching and then finding his own soul, you might say discovering himself, will be, and if he's doing it on his own, on his own as most people are, will be repeatedly losing it. Yet the person completely destroying or losing his soul on account of me will be progressively finding and discovering it. It's, it's the same, basically the same idea that we discussed in, in Matthew 16 above here. So he, he will be finding his true self, identity, purpose, and consciousness. Now, the, by the fact that Jesus speaks about a person searching for and then finding his own soul, this tells us that he was not speaking about a person's physical life or existence uh, as, a, as, a, as a human being, as it has been translated. It's saying it often translated life there, but it's the word soul. The context of this entire passage is dealing with our, our value to the Father in verses 
29 through 31. Our relationship to him in verses 32 through 33, the peace of their society in verse 34, family relationships in verse 35 through 36, a disciple's relationship with his or her family as contrasted to their relationship with himself in verses 37 through 38, Uh, and the need for a disciple to take up his own cross and follow Jesus in verse 38. This brings us to the, uh, the verse in question, verse 39, as we just quoted above, which I suggest is an amplification of verse 38. Notice that the participle, destroying and losing, is in the active voice, once again, as to your point. This disciple is called to do this. And as we see in the last clause of the verse, this is the path to finding one's own soul. It is the journey of ridding oneself of his Adam consciousness, his own wills, his self-focused, self-seeking, self-possessed persona and identity, his emotions, his plans, his goals. It is a path of self-denial, or as Paul put it, the life of being a slave of Jesus Christ, as he stated of himself in in Romans 1, verse 1. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 16, you know, and we read that. And then in verse 24, we read that above. In verse 25, you see, whoever may intend to keep his soul life will continue losing it, ruining it, destroying it. Yet whoever may loose away and even destroy his soul life or his consciousness, consciousness of self on my account will continue finding it. For what will a person proceed benefited or in what will he uh, continue helped or augmented if he can or, or would advantageously procure and gain the whole world or the whole ordered system of society, government, and so forth, even the whole universe, you might say, yet would be undergoing the loss of receive damage to or be made to forfeit his soul life? Or what will a person proceed giving as a result of a change instead or an ex- in exchange pertaining to his soul? Note that all this all is about what is required of disciples, those who are called to carry on the work of, of Christ in the earth. And in my own understanding, I make a difference between that and everyone else. Everyone has a particular calling in life. Not all are called to be a disciple in the way that Jesus was calling these people. That's my view uh, toward this verse. Only a few were called to be his learners, his students, his apprentices. This is how we can best understand what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 through 14, which I read above. Jesus originally called just 12 to be sent forth, folks, that would carry the good news to their world. This saying was meant for those who be called to follow him and be his anointed body in the earth. They, entering into his life way through the narrow restrictive gate, which is Jesus, would live a life that would be no longer I, but Christ living in me, as I noted before. That's in Galatians 2.20. And they would be dispensing his life through his word and his spirit to those who are following the roadway that leads into loss, ruin, and destruction, which the majority of mankind is presently doing and has been. But many who read about these, what we might call losers, miss the fact that he said that they 
on the road to, de- to demolition are the folks continuously entering through and by means of it. So even that road of, of destruction is a means of entering it. Loss and destruction is, in fact, a hard and misery-gushed path through life. Jesus and his followers take the restricted path that enables them to destroy their souls in order to become vessels of mercy, pouring out mercy upon those in misery on the broad path. So what you're wanting to say is we probably need to keep in mind that when Jesus was calling, he was calling a smaller group with a very special vocation Yes, in the early ministry. And then there were those who would more generally follow the path or the way of life that he laid out. Yes. Yes. Well, let's let's move on a little bit. Jesus does use this word destroy in then kind of a general sense sometime that could have many applications for life. I was wondering if you could give us an example of this. Well, in Matthew 18, he gave the parable of the lost sheep in verses 12 through 13. In verses 14 in that passage, he gave an application where he says, In the same way, it continues not being the will of my Father, the one with, within the heavens and within the midst of the atmospheres, that one of these little folks would destroy himself or should become lost. Notice that the middle middle voice, destroy himself. Without Christ, this is what we do to ourselves here and now. In Luke 15, as, as we cited earlier, Jesus offered the parables of someone losing uh, one of 100 sheep, just one. In verse 4, he asks his audience, what person among you folks is, is normally leaving the 99 down within the wilderness and then continuing on his way upon the track of the lost one until he can or would find it. Then in verse 6b, this person uh, that finds a sheep says, celebrate together with me because I have found my lost sheep, the sheep having been destroyed. That's just one, one example. Now, in some of Jesus' parables, there is the mention of the destruction of the wicked. In Matthew 21, 41, Jesus is telling a parable about a vineyard owner who is going to bring the killers of his son to a wretched end. That's the Greek word apolesei, which is future active. And then in Matthew 22, 7, Jesus tells about a king who sent out an invitation to his son's wedding banquet, but his servants bearing the invitation are killed, and the king sends an army to destroy them. We have a form of apolesei there, too, to destroy and burn their city. So what do you make of this kind of language? I read many of Matthew's parables that are judgment parables, basically, as speaking prophetically, primarily applying to the present situation at that time. Many of them were directed at the Judean leadership of his day, and and at times they recognized this. Matthew goes on to record other prophecies of Jerusalem's destruction in chapter 4, as does Luke in his gospel in chapter 21. I suggest that these were fulfilled in AD 70, which ended the Judean rebellion at that time. These parables spoke of physical destruction, which history bears out. In Matthew 26, 52, he told his disciples 
those taking a knife or a sword will proceed destroying themselves by it. So he had a lot to say to his immediate audience and the, the, the times in which we were living. And uh, audience relevance is often something that is just ignored. And we apply some of these things to ourselves or to other situations. But audience relevance is a very important thing to keep in mind. Well, I know that that really helped me in my understanding of the, the New Testament when I realized that when Jesus was talking about this corrupt leadership of this wicked generation, he was warning people that these people are going to take the path of violence and it's going to lead to the dis- complete destruction of yes. Israel and you'll be destroyed. You'll be destroyed with them. And so a lot of his language is warning about destruction in Gehenna. Once I was able to place that at the end of the coming age with the dest- the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which Jesus saw so clearly yes Yes. uh that really helped me understanding the destruction language of the new testament plus the gehenna the the phrase gehenna which was kind of a mystery as to what that was all about yes absolutely the audience of his time would have understood jesus particular rhetoric in in uh using gehenna uh, uh, metaphorically there and yet also speaking of an actual thing that was coming to Jerusalem and the primary, the leadership, and, and he warns them, you know, flee, get out of, yeah, when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, it's time to leave, as he says in Luke 21. So, yeah. Right, it's not going to do very much good for, if when he talks about the end, it's not going to do you very much good to head for the hills if it's the end of everything. That's right. <laughs> but if it's Absolutely. the end of, but if he's warning you not to go into Jerusalem, which would have been a natural thing to do because there was a sense that Jerusalem was the holy city and that God would not yes. let its walls be overcome. So it makes a Absolutely. lot of sense that they would think that would be the safe place to be. And so yes. it seems pretty counterintuitive for Jesus to say, no, that is not the safe place. The hills right. are the safe place. Right. And, you know, reading a bit of Josephus and his historical writings of that same period, he was contemporary following of the, of the destruction of Jerusalem, really helps to flesh out our understanding of the much of, of these uh, prophetic parables where Jesus was speaking of such as these, the king coming and destroying these people and so forth. God often worked through foreign armies in like he did with Israel in the past, Babylon coming in and taking Jerusalem and, and Israel, uh, or the Assyrians took Israel and later uh, Babylonians took Judea, you know. And if we make this, see that there's a continuing story going on that Jesus and all of the writers, they tapped into that because people were aware. They could, they understood that context and they understood the context that they were in. They were still in a sense, in exile, because they were they were an occupied country by the Romans. In Luke 6, 9, Jesus asked the religious leaders if it was allowed to do good on the Sabbath or to do worthless things, to heal or to destroy. And that's an interesting passage. What do you make of that? Well, he was about to heal a person on the Sabbath, It seems that he was setting the scene to put healing and saving on the same plane of existence 
so as to contrast these with what it meant to destroy someone or to lose a soul or destroy a soul even. He seemed to be saying that to ignore a chance to do good is equivalent to losing or destroying a person. It's like the Good Samaritan and like the sheep in the parable in Matthew 25. In both parables, he highlighted good works done by the Samaritan and by the sheep in those two contexts versus the lack of good deeds, either the religious Judeans in the former parable or the goats, and that's literally kids, meaning immature goats, in the latter parable. In both cases of those two parables and here in Luke 9, 6, 9, it was about things done in the here and now. Failure to heal a man when he could do it, he equated with destroying him. Failure to help the half-dead man on the road to Jericho would have been like just letting him die. The failure of the kids in Matthew 25 to visit the, uh, the sick or those in prison, to clothe people, to feed them, and so forth, could likewise have been like destroying the hungry, the naked, the sick, and the imprisoned. Jesus came to give us life, and imparting his life to others via his word is our mission. It's really interesting to me how there's this contrast between life and death, losing and gaining. And we see that again in Luke 6, 24 to 25, where Jesus speaks of gaining the whole world versus losing one's soul. Could you tell us some more about yes. your impressions about that? In Jesus' parables, like we've stated in Luke 15, 4 through 32, being a lost sheep or losing a coin or having one son leave home only to come to a place of complete loss are all nothing but preludes to having the good shepherd find us, or we are unable to find what we have lost, or to have a child who has been dead to us, as, as the father says in the parable of the prodigal son, suddenly wake up, see his misery, and return home. In this triad of stories, everything that was lost or relationally dead was found. Our culture holds out the gold ring, you might say, for us to grab and to live the lifestyle of the rich and the famous. But most of us know that, that what hollow achievements and empty accumulations these end up being. We can find that we have wasted the treasure of the life that was given to us and thus not have found what is really important. We may miss the process of being transformed so as to reflect God's image. If all that we have known is receiving, then we will have missed out on the better which comes with giving, where Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. But all, less all lost treasures are known to our Father, and he is the God of restoration. He goes after the sheep or souls, until he finds them. We should also keep in mind the lesson of Jeremiah learned when he visited the potter's house. He saw a pot that was marred in the hand of the potter, but that was not its end. The pot was just made into another pot. That's in Jeremiah 18.4. Paul used the metaphor of the pot as being us and God being the potter in Romans 9.20. Well, one of the things that you talked about there is about when you lose a treasure, when you lose something that's valuable, you say, uh, or you made the comment that all lost treasures are known to our Father, and He is the God of restoration. So 
the lost sheep wasn't just an animal. It was something that was of great value to the shepherd. Yes. So lost people aren't just human beings who have gone down the bad path. They are treasured sons and daughters of the heavenly father. They have great, they have great value. Yes. And I think that's, that's important because sometimes we can feel in our shame. Sometimes our shame can make us hard to see that we still have value, that we are still valuable to the heavenly father. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and he said, all souls are mine. Mm -hmm. He owns all. He, He owns all. Yes. Well, there is also that word uh, perish uh, that we come across in this conversation, and we find this in one of the most famous passages, uh, John uh, 3.16. And I wonder if you could go over that with us. Well, that word perish is King James and maybe some other translations rendering of uh, the verb that we're discussing in this podcast. First of all, let us remember that in John 3.16b, or A, the first part of the verse, we're informed that God loves the world, that is, the aggregate of humanity. And that statement right there should, should really be a key to understanding all that Jesus is saying here. Uh, now, because of this, God gave his son to us to the end that all humanity, when trusting and believing, when they come to that, would not completely lose or destroy itself. I translate that all humanity because he said the world, that all humanity. Uh, and it's the, the middle voice. Once again, it's, it's this is what we do to ourselves or cause itself to fall into ruin, but rather can have Ionian life or the life of the age of the Messiah, as I like to render it, because the Jews saw two ages, the present age and the coming age of the Messiah. And that would have been the understanding of Nicodemus when he came to speak to to uh, Jesus that night. Let me jump in right here. Yes, they saw that as they saw that age and the coming age, and for for a long time, I kind of thought, well, oh, that must mean that there's only two ages: this age and the age to come. But there were actually prior ages, and there will be ages to come after the coming age. So That's Paul correct. talks in Ephesians about the coming ages. Plural. So. Yes. Yeah, so that helped me to understand that it's not like this age is everything up to the end of this age, and then the coming age is then everything that's eternity. That's no, there is a there is more of a succession of ages that's moving along, and it's at the end of the succession of the ages that God will be all in all. And at the end of the ages, that doesn't mean everything ceases to exist. That means that we're all now existing in sort of a super temporal reality, we might call it, that is above or beyond the ages. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's hard. That was hard for me to get. That was hard for me to get that understanding. Yeah. But that understanding that you've come to really helps you when you read the book of Revelation, where it speaks of the ages of the ages, those those phrases in there. But in this in this particular time, often the Jews happen to be thinking of just, you know, the age of the Messiah that they were right. looking for. Well, here and now are the are the place and time of this potential loss, ruin, and destruction. We can be re- reborn into this new higher life here and now and not wait until whatever God decides to do with or in us after this life. When we return 
into him. And that is, is our destiny because Romans 11 36 says that, that all things are uh, from out of him and through him and into him. Uh, the literal most basic meaning of, of the preposition ace there is not for him, although it can mean that. But the one of the basic, basic meanings is a movement into the midst of him. So that's where everything ends. And we all end in God. Here and now are where people are lost and suffering. They need a savior. They need Christ. Now, in verse 36 of the same chapter of John, we're informed that God's orge the, uh, is constantly dwelling and remaining upon folks. That's present tense right there in, in Jesus' day and, and in ours that are unconvinced and disobedient and without faith regarding the Son. That's the same thing as um, being on the path to destruction that we were talking about uh earlier here. This is their present condition here and now. It is the human predicament uh, when, when apart from a consciousness of God and from the imparted life of Christ. This life outside of God's paradise garden is life where folks are dead in trespasses and sins, as I quoted above in Ephesians 2.1 and also see uh, Romans 5.12 where Paul talks about death passing into all. But what is God's orge? It is normally translated wrath, and wrath or anger are indeed at one end of the semantic range of this word. But its root idea is the swelling of juices in a flower bud or later in its fruit. It can refer to swelling passion or love between husband and wife. These are at the opposite end of the semantic range of this word orge. So let's investigate this. 20 verses earlier, we're instructed that God loves us, loves all humanity, and wants to, to, uh, us to move from death to life. With this in mind, how should we think about God's orge here in verse 36? Well, what does Ezekiel 16 report to us in the case of Jerusalem in all of her abominations? Verse 8 tells us that Yahweh covered her nakedness and entered into a covenant with her, and she became his. Then he washed her and washed away her blood. He anointed her, clothed her, and adorned her. Now, was not this the love of the good shepherd who found a lost sheep? His swelling passion made its home on her and remained on her. So how we think of this word normally translated wrath should be informed by what uh, John recorded 20 verses earlier in, in verse 316, that God so loved the world or the aggregate of humanity. Yeah, that's uh, uh, important to get the idea that God's wrath, I was a little bit shocked when I found out that the Greek word behind that is orge, which has to do, as you say, with this passion and... What that means is that the further that we get away from who we are supposed to be, the more determined God becomes in getting us back on path. Yes. So the determination, the anger that it's, I kind of imagine a frustrated parent saying, okay, okay, yeah. you want to do it this way? Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, let's go there. Let's do it this way then. And yeah 
kind of, uh, I'm not wanting, I'm not wanting to be this way towards you, but my love for you and my value of you, you might say has kind of gotten me worked up here yes. in this situation. And so it's moved me into, it's, it's moved me into what you might call anger, but it's not for the purpose of completely destroying you. It's for doing what I need to get done now, because here we are in order to get things back on track. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with that, David. You know, taking another aspect of this, because um, this word anger goes all, all the way through, it can be an, uh, even a mental bent or a frame of mind. If we take a different situation and, and say, okay, what was the thinking of the prodigal son's father? When the son wanted to leave the family business and take off and just be on his own. Well, he he said, we don't know exactly because it's not recorded how what he was thinking. Uh, would that likely have been really tearing his heart? Would, would that really have aroused his passion? And yet he he saw the need probably for the son to do this because the son was unhappy and apparently in his own situation. And he wanted to leave. And yet now when he comes back, look at the passion of, of his acceptance of the son coming back. You know, hey, clothe him. Don't let the community see that he's coming back, you know, naked. Put a ring on his finger. Don't, don't let anybody know his condition. You know, cover, cover, cover him. Put shoes on his feet. All of this. There was, the father would have been going, going through a period of, internal emotion the whole time the son was gone from the fact that he wanted to go all the way through back into this time. And, and his love, which could have been his orge remained on him. And we see that from the way he received the son back with nothing about anything wrong. Wouldn't let him say anything. Just come on, let's celebrate. Just like the last year. Well, there, so we can say it is the passion of God, we might say then, to completely destroy that, those lies and those falsehoods yes. that, are, that are keeping us from who we truly are. And God has different methods. You might say God has different methods depending on the, on the situation Absolutely. that's at hand. Absolutely. And so, so we see this in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 19, where now, here's an example of where God does completely want to destroy something, which would be the cleverness of the wise. Yes. Paul spoke to those to whom the message of the cross was stupidity, obviously not being believers, um, <clears throat> were constantly or progressively destroying themselves. It was happening then and there in Corinth, but at the time, at the same time, uh, the same message was and is God's power in us who are presently being delivered. This is a snapshot of the dead and of the living, of the lost and the found. Observe in verse 19 that God would destroy the wisdom and cleverness of the wise ones. In other words, he will destroy that which interferes with people seeing and understanding the power of the cross. And so then we'll come to believe. And this is, this is what happens in our own lives. We can see this happening. 
our wisdom often, <laughs> our natural thinking, and uh, leads us to make decisions that are ultimately destructive to us, especially when we're young and out on our own and don't have God's wisdom, you know. Uh, I've heard that called, I've heard that called stinking thinking. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're there thinking, you we're doing there a lot of thinking, but it's not getting us anywhere good. Right. And, 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 and God, God's love will destroy that thinking out of us, that wisdom of the wise. Now, in the ancient context, there was a, the, the Jewish people had a lot of reflection about the law, and that's kind of hard for us to understand. Uh, we're not used to thinking about living with this, uh, the, in the way that the Jewish people of Jesus' day lived with this law, the, the Jewish law, or the law that they received from Moses. In Romans 2.12, Paul makes this interesting declaration. He says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. What do you think that means? Well, David, if folks continue to miss the goal or deviate or sin, that is to say sin without the law, they will still continue fully destroying themselves, just as we saw in John 3.16b. Uh, they would continue perishing. Uh, and God's intrinsic fervor, his, his uh, passion, uh, continues upon them, as we saw in, in John 3.36b. Now, in Romans 14.15, the second half, Paul warns us about destroying or ruining a weak believer by food that we are eating. That is a present time situation. The wages of sin is death, which is a state of being for most of humanity, like Ephesians 2 verse 1 informs us. But Christ comes into our death via his word and spirit and raises us up to that state of being that we find in Ephesians 6, uh, 2 verse 6, where he has seated us together with him. Now, in Numbers 21, we, we read of Israel destroying, losing, and ruining themselves by murmuring. We find this in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10. They were being literally killed by, by snake bites. We also read that all of the older disbelieving generation of the wilderness journey died there because of fear of entering the promised land. Israel did not enter with, with Joshua until those of that generation were dead. That was their judgment for not trusting the Lord and not believing. But for those 40 years, we, we read that they were fed, they were watered, they were kept by God's care. Their judgment for unbelief was then and there, not in the afterlife. These are examples to us. Complaining, fear, and unbelief can hinder us as well. It presents a contrast for us regarding the present life. Living is better than dying. Enjoying the new arrangement or the new covenant is better than remaining in what has passed away, as Paul informed us in 2 Corinthians 5.17. The old has passed away. Now, Romans 2.12 is speaking to the context of law. The witness of Israel's history portrays this, uh, quote, this life judgments uh, all through her story and was continuing in this during Paul's time and his writing uh, of the 
letter to Roman to the Romans. Israel was still in exile, but this time under the domination of Rome, even while dwelling in her quote unquote promised land. Well, Paul is, he's an interesting, he has lots of interesting examples and ways of putting things together. There's an interesting phrase that we find in 2 Corinthians 2, 15 to 16. And just as the NIV has translated it, it reads, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death, to the other, an aroma that brings life. What do you think Paul is getting at here? Um, I'd like to set the context by beginning with verse 14, and if you don't mind, reading from my own translation. <laughs> verse 14, now grace and favor, two, two meanings of the same word, charis, are in and by God. And I translate that there just as an aside, as a dative different than to God, you know. Anyhow, in and by and with the one constantly celebrating us with a victory procession at all times within and in union with Christ and progressively setting in clear light the fragrance of his intimate knowledge. So the fragrant here is speaking of uh, intimate experiential knowledge, gnosis, uh, through us in every place. Then, because within God, we continuously exist being God's sweet fragrance, within and among those uh, being progressively delivered or saved, kept safe, rescued, yet also within and among those progressively uh, fully ruined. And now, to to or with these, on the one hand, a stench of death with a view unto death. Uh, yet to those, on the other hand, a fragrance from out of life with a view unto life. So who is adequate, sufficient, or qualified in facing or approaching toward these matters? Paul describes honors in this life experiences, but from the uh, rhetorical question at the end of verse 16, the last question that I, I quoted there. Uh, it seems that explaining all of this is quite beyond us <laughs> and beyond me. However, we see the word ruined, destroyed in verse 15, and it is clearly an ongoing process while folks are metaphorically still dead, as we've quoted a number of times from Ephesians 2.1. Once again, we have the contrast between those who are still in the realm of metaphorical death and those who have come to life in Christ. But where these being ruined presently exist is where we once were ourselves. Ruined destruction or being lost are not the final end for anyone. It is just the prelude to deliverance through Christ who remains the resurrection and the life, as we read in John eleven twenty five? Well, Jonathan, we we see another example in Second Corinthians four three in the NIV. That Second Corinthians four three reads, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, and to those in the annihilation camp. It this might seem to describe a final condition 
for those who are perishing. Do you read this another way? Yeah, yes, David, indeed I do. There's no difference than what we have just discussed here in this passage. Those who are metaphorically dead and are being progressively ruined are described in this passage using the metaphor of having a head covering or a veil over their faces, and they cannot presently see the light of the truth or Christ. For our listeners, let's read this verse and the following one. Now, if the good news coming from us continues being covered from having been veiled with a head covering, it continues being thus covered in union with and within the midst of and centered in those on their way to utter ruin. Within and among such folks, the God of this age blinds the effects of the perceptions, concepts, and understanding of those without faith, leading them into the situation that the shining forth of light and the illumination of the good news of the glory of Christ, who continuously exists being God's image, would not shine forth as as the dawn to irradiate them. Now, verse 4 explains how the veiled and covered situations happen to those described in verse 3. Now, these verses follow what Paul was saying about Israel in both their past and their then-present situation. In in chapter 3, verse 13, he spoke of Moses putting a veil on his face. So let's read the context there in chapter 3 that sheds light on these verses that we have just discussed in chapter 4 above. In in, um, uh, verse 14, we read, But further, the results of their perceptions, concepts, and understandings were petrified, made hard and stony and so forth, uh, upon the reading of the Old Covenant. That is, uh, the reading of the Old or the, the reading of the Old or the Old Covenant itself, you know, continuing not being uncovered or unveiled, because it, that is the Old Covenant and arrangement, continues being progressively and fully unemployed and brought down to doing no work and being made useless, ineffective, and nullified within Christ. That's my expanded translation of that situation. Mm-hmm. Or the old arrangement is abolished, and so forth. Now verse 15, still further until today, whenever Moses should be habitually read, that is, in a synagogue, a head covering continues lying upon their heart. Yet whenever the time should be reached, when it, that is the heart, can or would twist and turn upon so as to face toward the Lord, the head covering is progressively taken from around it. So the condition of those who were presently on their way to utter ruin, and that really describes all of mankind, they're on the broad path to destruction in verse 4-3, is not their final end. The head covering will ultimately be taken away, and thus... As, Revelation, as Romans eleven twenty six informs us, all Israel will be saved. All right, Jonathan, the next passage I'd like to ask you about comes from 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 through 12, where we read about all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish 
because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. What is your reaction to that passage? In verse 8, we read that Paul is speaking of the lawless person or this unlawful one, the one without law, or that could read the man who violates the law or is contrary to custom. Then that could be even speaking about the zealots of, of Paul's day. Of them being, the lawless person being uncovered, unveiled, or disclosed, whom the Lord will take back up again. Now, there are two different manuscript readings here. And this 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 uh, first one is the reading of an irao, uh, take away. And we find this in Nestle's uh, text. But others, other uh, Griesbach and other manuscripts read Ana Lisco consume. So there are two different readings, and so we'll just leave that as it is. But I read here, we'll take back up again by the spirit or breath effect of his mouth, and will deactivate by the manifestation of his presence. Now, before addressing these verses, we should note the phrase using the noun, which we discussed above in John 17, 12. Here in 2 Thessalonians 2, we, read, we again find the phrase, the son of loss, the person having the qualities of characters of the destruction. Paul, of course, is referring to someone else, but this application of the noun is instructive. Is instructive. The son of the loss, that was Judas, and here we're, talk, we're talking about a different situation. This is a, a, I suggest that this is apocalyptic language, and unpacking this verse will lead us off topic, but it sets the stage for what follows. So to the point, I will start with verse 9 and go through the passage. I'll read briefly one, one version here of my translation. It says, whose presence is continuously existing in correspondence to the adversary's inworking activity in all power as well as signs and wonders of falsehood and within every deception of the injustice within the folks continuously or repeatedly being lost in return for which they do not take unto themselves and welcomely receive the love of and from the truth or from Christ into the situation for them to, at some point, be suddenly delivered. Now, the manifestation spoken of back in verse 8 can, re can refer to uh, bringing light upon the lawless person. Thus, verses 9 and 10 can be read in two different ways. The first one would be by seeing this as Christ's manifestation, and presence that is meeting the inworking activity of the adversary within within people in its sphere and on every level of its activity within its signs and wonders of falsehood and within each of its deceptions of injustice within the lost who are progressively destroying themselves and so forth. Note that the last clause of verse 10 uh, has Christ's work lead them into the situation for them to, at some point, be suddenly delivered. Now, a second way of reading this is, is the manner, as, as often understood, is the manifestation of the lawless person. 
either as an individual historically or as a strange humanity as a whole, we see that its presence corresponds to the working of the adversary within, which operates with its false powers and lying wonders within the deceptions of that which is contrary to the path of life. This causes folks to receive and retain, uh, not to receive or retain the love, which is God, which is truth and reality, Christ, or an acceptance of reality. Nonetheless, the result is the same either way you read these verses. Uh, verse 10 tells us deliverance, rescue, even through their present condition, even the, though their present condition is that of being lost and destroyed. Now, continuing on in this passage, verse 11 says, And so because of this, God is continuously sending to them an inworking of wandering into the situation for them to believe and to trust the lie. To the end that all those not believing the truth, but rather approving and delighting in injustice, may or would at some point be sifted, separated, and decided about, or judged. Now verses 11 through 12 tell us of the intermediary judging of folks who are not presently a part of the called out community. It is an echo of Romans 1.24, which is a prelude to the period of sifting, separating, and deciding by God, described here in verse 12. This is an ongoing process, as verse 11 says. Uh, verse 11 says he is continuously sending to them and in them uh, an inworking or an operation of wandering. Now, this is an allusion. I, I read this as an allusion to Israel in the wilderness. Here we see reference to repayments noted in 2 Thessalonians 1.16, squeezing uh, and oppression, ordeal and trouble. These, are, these repayments are judgment here and now. As such things made the believers worthy of God's reign, those things made the oppressions and things we read in, first, uh, in chapter 1, verse 5 of this same letter, it will do the same sifting of these reference in Verse 2.10, again, this, this applied to the situation in the first century Thessalonica and to all times and situations ever since. He is the same yesterday, today, and on into the ages. As Paul said in Romans 8.31, since God is for us, who can be against us? And, and that calls to mind, for God so loved the world. And as we are instructed in Hebrews 10.39, Yet we ourselves do not relate to or exist from a lowering of the sails and shrinking back into a state of being lost, nor into destruction, but rather we exist from faith and confident trust leading into an encompassing which is from the soul and defines the soul. So once again, this passage is not speaking of an ultimate end of somebody or their annihilation. It just has to do with the that this is a repeated theme that we just see over and over again. Yes, as we can, the more we continue to walk the path of perishing, the more perishing we experience. Absolutely, uh, and ultimately, uh, we can we can be enlightened, and we can we can accelerate the perishing of everything that we shouldn't be involved with on our own, or 
we can go the we can go the bad path and and that path will will lead to the will lead to the destruction one way or another the destruction has to finally take place of everything that's of everything that's that's false in um, just one one more uh, example of this word apolumai mm-hmm. and uh in uh, he in the first chapter of Hebrews, beginning with verse ten, in the NIV we read, "In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end." So, Jonathan, what do you make of those who might seem to be perishing in this context? I see this context, David, as um, an instance of contrasting parallelism in these last two verses. Uh, Parallelism is a very common rhetorical device used in the Old Testament a lot. And here we have it basically quoted here in in, Jonathan. Hebrews 1. We see this as seen in the corresponding refrains in each verse, the parallelism. These verses compare the inherent character of the aging and thus changing of creations in verse 10 through 11a, and of people, verse 12, the verse, verse 12a, to the unchangeable character and continuous of God. Uh, let me read this, uh, tra- these two, these verses in my translation. The word "all" there in verse twelve is in the in the masculine, and it it should really be rendered "all people," because really this is talking about people. That's that's the point of of the metaphor. Uh, in verse ten, it says, "O Lord," and this would have been Yahweh back in 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 there. Down from beginnings, you yourself founded the earth, and the works of your hands are the heavens. That reminds us an awful lot of, of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 3. Verse, verse 11, they shall progressively completely destroy themselves. The, the uh, middle voice there, ruin or lose themselves. Yet, you continue remaining throughout. Then in verse 12, and all people as a garment shall be progressively made or grow old. We see that happening. Then like that which is thrown around as a cloak, you will proceed rolling or wrapping them up as a garment. And so they will progressively be made another. That's by rending. It could be also be altered, be changed, be transformed. Yet you are the same, and your years will not fail. Now that's quoting Psalm 102, verse 25 through 28 in the Septuagint. Uh, see, see also Revelation 6:14, just for those who would like to read read a similar situation there. All right, now the subject of the first clause of verse 12 which others include as a part of verse 11, the B, is the word all as a nominative, masculine, plural, pontes. Since it <clears throat> is masculine, as I said, it refers to people and thus my rendering. 
when we remove the metaphor of the garment and the aspect of growing old, which we all go through, and being wrapped up, now that could be wrapped up as a body wrapped for burial, it boils down to a beautiful thought. All people will progressively be made another, be altered, be changed, be transformed. This is the process of what God is doing with all of us. All people will be changed, will be transformed. So this turns out to be a beautiful promise to us when it's properly translated and understood. You know, that is one thing that became interesting to me is that when I, I didn't grow up in church, and when I was first around Christianity, it, it seemed that the main point was that I needed to get saved because there were some of us that were going to be saved and some of us that weren't going to be saved. And, uh, but the more, and, and that made it seem like a very individualistic thing. But the more I've gotten into this, the more I've seen that there is some kind of connection between all of us. We are like this garment. There's something about us all together. So this isn't, this isn't just about me saying, yay, I have been, I have been saved. I have now entering, I've now entered into this. I can't, I'm not completely saved and restored until humanity is completely saved and restored. So my restoration is connected to your restoration. Yes. It's connected to other people's restoration. It's, it's, it's a, it's the, to me, that's sort of the beautiful vision of all of this is it's the restoration of all. And so when I look at other people and I'm tempted to judge them, I'm saying uh, I, I don't want to judge them so that they would be completely removed from everything forever. I want their restoration and healing so that we can all be whole together. So that's yes, the, the, absolutely. the salvation is not just, I'm going to you know, these individual dots, getting some dots get saved and other dots don't get saved. That's no, right. we're, we're all inner, interconnected. And so maybe with that, I was wondering if you could kind of leave us with some concluding thoughts about this epilumi debate and the understanding of eternal destiny. Thank you, David. Uh, to, to, to the point that you just made, if you look at the pattern, one of the patterns was the Exodus, the, you know, the Passover, all of that. He didn't just choose a few of the Jews there to come out and say, well, you and you and uh, you and you. Now, the whole group came out, the whole group. And all of them were not immediately uh, transformed through that, but they were all delivered out of Egypt. And and we see through the story that are the, the kind of the roots of the gospel are the stories that of the old covenant and Israel in, in the prior times. And God d normally dealt in judgment or deliverance with the whole group, you know, and often it was due to where the leaders were, had gone astray in Israel because the leaders were leading the people astray. Then the whole group is, is judged. And that takes us right back to Paul picking up and using the metaphor of Adam, as in Adam all die, you know, yet in Christ shall all be made alive. It was, he, he dealt, his, his grand dealings 
were corporate. It included everyone. Um, there's no clear evidence that the word that we've been studying here, talking about uh, apolumi, there's no c clear evidence that this word should be understood as indicating a person's eternal destiny. That has to be read into the text. All of its occurrences can be read and understood as applying to this present life and to on-earth situations. We, we see that in, in the types in Israel. You know, Israel had no, no doctrine of, of, of judgments after death. It was, it was here and now that the judgments came. We could have expanded this discussion into consideration of other uses of the noun, but I suggest that the same meaning and, and inferences apply to those passages as they have to the passages that we have laboriously discussed here. Mm -hmm. uh, people spoke of the life condi uh, conditions, of, or I'm sorry, Paul spoke of the life conditions of people living in his time and whose lives would end in loss and destruction, just as had many during Israel's history. Reread in Philippians 3, 18 through 19, many continue walking about as enemies of the cross, whose goal, whose end or final stage is ruin and loss or waste and destruction, whose God is their belly, their cavity, and whose reputation resides within their shame people continually thinking about the things existing upon the earth. Paul's emphasis was upon how people live their lives here and now. The term telos in verse 19 that I just read there can be read as referring to the goal of their behaviors or the end which they have in mind for social situations existing upon the earth. We see that in our day. These may have been zealots of his days whose activities ended in the destruction of Jerusalem. Loss and destruction are common elements of life here on earth. The good news is that we have someone who seeks the lost until he finds them, who restores that which was destroyed, transforming it into that which is better than before. He rescues everyone. And as the father who loves the aggregate of humanity, the we discussed in John 3.16, he makes decisions or judgments for their good. I would leave our listeners with that. It's, it's, a good, it's a good end. If you see that there was a plan from Genesis all the way through Revelation, from the destruction that resulted from the disobedience in Adam, all the way to the restoration to uh, uh, through Christ and we read, I, one of my favorite verses is Revelation 21.5, where the uh, King James says, Behold, I make all things new. Well, the word all there functions, the, the, the spelling of that word functions as, as both a neuter, which we would translate as things, that King James does, or masculine, which also can rec represent people. So, one of my renderings, I render it both ways in my translation, to be fair, that it can go either way. But I love the translation. Consider this. I am continuously making all people new or renewing all humans. 
what what a promise that it ends with. And then the very ending thing is is uh, the New Jerusalem, not uh, the mother of us all, as Paul said in in, in Galatians four twenty six, uh, descending down to those doing the same thing that Christ did. Christ descended to save, and here her gates are open, and this is during a time when outside there's still a lot of corruption and, and, and things going on, but the gates are open and those gates are, are Christ, but they're multiplied now as representing all of Israel, the 12 gates symbolically here. And I see that as that whole picture as a, a, a symbolic picture of, of Christ's bride, as it's called uh, the bride of, the lamb's uh, wife being here and now with our gates open, not shut. We shut nobody out. God shuts nobody out. And it's a city of light and there's a river of life. And so it's a restoration. Like you have a garden scene once again. And so there's a restoration to the very beginning, even though the judgments need to happen, just like with children, like with lost sons, corrections, you know, uh, even like back, we talked about the lost sheep. It didn't come wandering back to itself because it couldn't. It had to, ha it had to be brought back by the shepherd. The son mm -hmm. was a different story, but still he had to come to an enlightened stage of his, his destroyed condition and realize, wow, the father's house is there. So I have, I, I'm very hopeful and expectant, very expectant for all of humanity in God's time, you know, uh, in their own, as Paul says, in each in their own class or division or category in Romans 15, 23, uh, being made alive in Christ again. Well, when I think about this, uh, what's happening with the discussion about this word apolumai, just seems to me that that there is in the folks that are wanting to argue the annihilation position that it's understandable that the the doctrine of eternal conscious torment is just so odious yes. that we might we want to find ways to get away from it and there is a lot of language of destruction in in the old testament uh, you know there's not much of a sense of an, an afterlife of a, this ruin that comes upon people and uh, we have a lot of destruction language in the New Testament. And so I can really understand how somebody would think, well, okay, well, sin does lead. Maybe sin does lead to some kind of ultimate ruin. As a matter of fact, that was the position that I held for up until I was 50 years old. And then I started rethinking this. And ironically, it was an argument from the folks that were arguing from the eternal conscious torment view where they were saying, well, wait a second, something can be apolumai and still be in existence. Well, then that made me look at that word apolumai <laughs> again. Yes. And so ironically, it was an argument from the eternal conscious torment camp that made me rethink again when I was reading some writings about universal restoration that this apolumai word can have different shades of meaning. Yeah, sometimes it means if it's the if it's our wickedness and our sin, that does need to come to an absolute destruction. But it comes to an absolute destruction so that there can be an absolute restoration. 
Absolutely. And so I, th I think it's a positive move when people are moving away from the eternal conscious torment position. So I can understand how in the debate between the annihilationist position and the eternal conscious torment position that the an annihilationist would want to say, no, it can mean coming to it a person coming to an absolute end because they don't want to think about God tormenting somebody forever. Yeah. But then I think what you're pointing out, what others are is saying, well, hold on this, this word apoluma is rich and yes. it can have lots of shades of meaning. And so I think that I've learned to see that, that apoluma or destruction is a way that God brings to a complete end that which needs to be brought to a complete end so that that which needs to be restored can be completely restored. Yes. And, yeah. uh, and, that, that, and that I think what you do that's really helpful is help us to get the sense that this is a progressive thing. Yes. It's not just an instantaneous. God doesn't do it instantaneously. Right. Sometimes God takes a long time. Like you would think in the parable of the prodigal son, it would be easier for the the father who just have set the prodigal son down and said, listen, let me just save you lots of time. If, if you go on this journey, you're just going to have a bad experience and you're going to end up not having any fun and you're going to end up, you know, on the street and starving. And, and I'd hate for you to go through all this. So how about if I just forbid you to do that because I'm smarter than you? Yeah. Well, no, that's not what, sometimes it just takes a long time to work all these. Sometimes a lot of destruction has to take place before we finally come to our senses, you know, we come yes. to, to, we come to ourselves. So I appreciate the, the, uh, the detail that you put into your translations. And I, I like the way that you give sometimes when a word can be, uh, neuter or masculine, you give both senses of how that word could, uh, could be translated. But to me, what you're doing is you're, you're giving both uh, you're giving all of you're giving us all the options that we can use, but you're also showing us that there is an option for a truly beautiful translation of the New Testament, which might escape somebody if all they had access to was the English text. And yes. uh, so, I just want I want to recommend everybody continue to uh, uh, check out your check out your your work uh, and uh, go and visit your website at. Um, so I'm looking for my notes here. It's at Jonathan Mitchell. Say the, say the website again. Jonathan Mitchell, New Testament.com. Yeah, go to Jonathan Mitchell, New Testament.com, and you'll find a lot of res resources there. And then the other website where your work is, what's that one again? It's greater Emmanuel with an E, greater Emmanuel.org. Okay. And then your work, uh, your work is present there. Well, Jonathan, you've got some, you're very active. You've got another book coming out. And uh, when that comes out, I'd like to do some more interviews. Uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk some about the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe I'd love to the, do that, David. In the coming months. I, I like it that you're not just interested that everything is going to be fine in the end. So we don't need to do anything now. No, you're really interested in how it is that we can live this wonderful Eonian eternal life in God's kingdom right now. We don't have Absolutely. to, we don't have to wait. We can Absolutely. begin to experience it. And that's, 
there's a lot of negativity in the world. And it's to me, it's just been really transformative to say, well, even in the midst of the negativity of this world and the problems, I can live in this beautiful hope and power in life right now. So I commend your I commend your work and I look forward to the next time that we get to visit together. Thank you, David. I look forward to the same. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.